This is the sixth Sunday of Easter, and we're now uh, moving firmly towards the capstone of the great 50 days, the Feast of Pentecost, which will occur in two weeks. So this Thursday we'll have the Ascension, and then Sunday we'll have the Sunday after Ascension, or now the seventh Sunday of Easter, and then Pentecost. So today we have again a... Uh, emphasis, at least in the epistle and the gospel, on God's love and love. And he speaks the Savior today uh, in the gospel about friendship. But before that, in the book of Acts, Peter is speaking to a group of Gentiles, or as it's referred to in in the text as the uncircumcised, and he refers to himself and his uh, religious confreres, uh, the circumcised. So we want to talk a little bit about that because it's a a, uh, brief statement about the movement of the Spirit of God, and how do you and I understand what that means, and what do we do with this understanding The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So I got to thinking of this in terms of the kerfuffles in the Episcopal Church. Things have settled down to some degree. That's partly to do with some of the real strong objectors have left. Right? So it's a little easier to breathe easily, although it's a tragedy for them and for us. But today Peter is speaking about the movement of the Spirit, and here's the situation on the ground. Peter and... The disciples that are with him have encountered a group of Gentiles who have received in some way the Holy Spirit of God, but they haven't been baptized. So they remedy that moving down the road, but they're astounded that there are people who possess the Spirit of God and haven't been baptized. We believe, by the way, in terms of the the doctrines that have been created subsequent to the biblical witness that we in fact receive the Spirit at our baptism. How in the world are there people who are not baptized that have the Spirit? Right? So what this, is, what this does is help us ask the question, how do we understand the movement and the work of the Spirit in the world? If you read this in Greek, you'll discover that what is referred to as the Gentiles. By the way, you and I are mostly Gentiles, I suspect. I don't think there are any non-Gentiles in here. We don't think it's a term of opprobrium, negative. In Greek, the word for Gentile is ethne, where we get ethnic, right? And the translation of that word, or one of them, is those people. 
those people. What, on the other side, the circumcised and the members of the Christian community that Peter was part of are called in Greek laos, our people. It's where we get the word laity from, right? In English. So we have ethne and we have laos. And here Peter is coming to grips with the fact that the spirit has been given to ethne, those people. Now, what do you think is underneath this? Well, what's underneath it is the tension that is in the early Christian church between those who believed that in order to be a Christian, you had to be a Jew. And that meant, in this particular case, a fairly minimalist understanding of what that meant. It meant that men had to be circumcised. It meant that you had to observe the dietary laws and you had to keep the Sabbath. And if you didn't do that, you weren't in. You were ethne. Luke is Laos, is ethne, rather. He's a Gentile. And his community was primarily Gentile, although Luke was drawn to Judaism as many people were like him because of their strong moral and ethical view of the way in which people ought to behave and how they understand based on the influences of God's goodwill that we be God's people in the world. So he didn't go the full way. These people were called, by the way, proselytes. They hung around the Jews, but they didn't become Jewish. And I suspect when you're an older guy, 40, 45 years old, and they say you've got to be circumcised, you'd go, ooh. (laughs) Not me, right? I asked Rabbi Melanie Aaron, the rabbi of congregation Shir Hadash, well, what happens if you're an adult and you're a man and you want to become Jewish and you've already been circumcised in, in the hospital? What do, you have, what do you have to do? And she said, well, there has to be the drawing of blood. Right? Not for me. No. But Luke was uh, more concerned about things, and that is, is that the message in the gospel of Christ is not just for the Laos, it's for ethne. Right? And ultimately, we will understand everybody is Laos when we come into God's saving embrace. That's part of our self-understanding as Christian people. But we need to keep in mind that the Spirit moves where it will, and there are some people who are going to be vested with the Spirit who aren't part of this operation here. And they possess the Spirit. So we always have to keep that in mind when we think about who's in And who's out? And can we hear any spiritual wisdom from somebody who is not in? Is that possible? And I think we need to continuously ponder that idea. So in 1 John, we have a discussion of loving one another. There's some stuff about obeying 
my commandments. That may not be uh, a big sell in uh, this era, in 2015. But the Savior says the obeying of my commandments uh, is not onerous. Because what you need to do with the first commandment is, is you need to love one another. You need to learn how to do that. So when we segue to the gospel, we have Jesus speaking about uh, him saying that he has loved his disciples and by virtue of that they should love one another. And by virtue of loving one another and being part of this fellowship, he calls them friends. You are my friends. And those who heard Jesus' words and saw his works understood that in his words and in his works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. That's what they understood about the divinity of Jesus. So when Jesus calls them friends, God is calling them friends. That's what the early church said. You are my friends. So by extension, they also understood that uh, his words and works gave them the tools that could be used to love one another and to bring people into this fellowship where the law of love is the operative principle in all human interaction. And that we need to understand its power and its importance. When I read John's Gospel, I love to get to the parts. This is one of them, but there are others where I have called you friends. So it also makes us, by extension, think about friendship generally. What do we mean? Here's a highfalutin definition. I almost wasn't going to read it, but since I wrote it down, I thought I'd read it. Friendship, strictly speaking, is the mutual goodwill of two persons who accept each other profoundly in view of reciprocal growth. Now, there's the problem. This idea of reciprocal growth. All of us know people who believe, uh, b b believe that we are their friends, and we do, who have a program. And sometimes in friendship, uh, you, can, you can begin to reflect and think, gee, I'm a project here, and I don't feel very good about it, right? We don't mean that. Remember, you're powerless over people, places, and things, and you can't will change in other people. It's impossible. Although some people will become sick or crazy trying to do it. And they will not let up. Okay? So this is a part of the spiritual journey that we all have to undertake. The Savior has called us friends. He has a program for action. It is not onerous, and it requires a lot of internal work to finally understand its true meaning. I have called you friends. Some of us have friends that we have that are kind of superficial. I don't mean that negatively, but if you collect stamps, 
You may know somebody and be a friend who's a friend on the basis of that common interest, or if you play chess, or you do something like this, but maybe within those communities of philatelists, think of that. Or of chess players, you'll have some friends where there becomes some intimacy in friendship. What Jesus is talking about and what John is talking about in his gospel is that there is a reciprocal nature in the friendship between Jesus and them that is deep and intimate and is an affirmation that that can be accomplished in human interaction. It's very important. Very important to understand that. I was wondering where I was going to put this in my sermon, but I'm going to put it here because it may connect to friendship. I'm reading a book. One time somebody came into my office and they looked at all the books in the office and they said, have you read all these books? And I remember Dr. Johnson, Samuel Johnson. Some of you may not know who in the world Samuel Johnson is, but he's a very important figure in the history of ideas in Western um, the Western intellectual tradition, let's put it that way. So they went into Dr. Johnson's library and they said, have you read all these books? And he said, sir, I have read in them. That's me. I have read in them. So there's a book I'm reading by uh, a moral psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. I never knew this category existed in psychology. But he is a moral psychologist, so he's interested in the psychology of how we develop our moral sense. Right? So he's in the line of all of the people, for example, like Kohlberg and others who worked with children and found, did surveys and studies of how children develop their moral sense, and by extension, how adults develop their moral sense, the psychology of their morality. I'll give you a gross example that he begins the book with. A family in a house find in the street a dog that has been hit and run over and killed. So they bring the dog in the house, and they skin it and dress it, and they cook it and eat it. So besides, ooh, do you think they've committed a moral offense? Or is it a convention that has been violated that they realize is, is ooh, is gross? Is it a moral violation or no? My morals and ethics professor in seminary used to ask us all the time, he used to talk about two things. He used to say, is there any information or knowledge that we should not have or don't need to know? Think about this in the digital age. Asking that question. It wasn't the digital age yet, but we were like this. And are there some things, uh, if we can do them, should we do them? Because we can. So Haidt in his book is going through, I'm really fairly in the beginning, maybe 20% in. 
And he said that in his study, uh, he has discovered, the title of the book, by the way, is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. So he determines that both liberal and, well, he, he says, here are the six categories that we want to now see people, uh, what people who call themselves liberal think are important among this group, and what people who are conservative or call themselves conservative uh, think about these things. And here they are. Care, fairness, liberty, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. So liberals focus themselves. By the way, uh, Haidt is not a believer. He doesn't believe any of this. They focus themselves on care, fairness, and liberty. Those are the three important things, right? We want a society that's more compassionate. We want a society that's fair. And we want to be free to do what we want. The highest moral good in our culture, you may disagree with this, but I believe this with all my heart, is the triumph of the autonomous self. Right? And that means that I make my own reality. There's a term for this in philosophy. It's called solipsism. Right? You make your own reality, or your reality is what you make. Right? I hear this all the time for people who have not read in books, who just believe it because it's a kind of conventional wisdom that floats through the culture. Right? I don't know. That's Episcopalian 101, isn't it? There's something to do with that. So loyalty, authority, and sanctity uh, are not considered important or as important. Conservatives... Think all six are important. So here I am, David Brewer, who considers himself liberal. I mean, I think we've got to create a society where it's easier for people to be good. We need to be caring and compassionate. We need to be fair. There's so many things in this culture that are manifestly unfair, and they're now coming back to bite us. What we're seeing in the culture, the wider culture, with all of this unrest and difficulty, is there's something seriously out of adjustment. And attention has not been paid to it. And the people who are the ones who suffer under this, in the main, are not going to take it anymore. They're simply not. And they shouldn't. So we need to labor to create a society where it's easier for people to be fair to one another. But I believe in loyalty. I believe in authority. I believe that there are things that are true whether David Brewer believes them or not. You know? And I believe in sanctity and holiness and that you and I need to, in our lives, move towards some species of holiness and what that constitutes is the, great, is the great question, isn't it? Now, what in the world does this have to do with friendship? 
Remember the title of the book, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. We have, it appears, a society that is absolutely divided down the middle. And a few weeks ago, I heard on one of the news stations, uh, uh, cable news stations, I heard an interview with a former senator and a former congressman. I think they were on together. And they, they were sort of old-timers. They'd retired by now. But they were talking about what things were like in their long years of being a senator and a congressman. And uh, they came from disparate parties, Republicans and Democrats. And they both said, you know, there was a time when the people, or a lot of the people that were in the Senate and in the House of Representatives were friends. We were friends. We ate dinner together. We did stuff together. We'd argue together. We'd sit around and argue about policy and about economic justice and about how one side wanted it and another, you know. Now, I'm making a distinction, I want to make sure you know, between friendship that they describe as the kind of thing that we would yearn for and wish to be so among people who are responsible for making laws and doing things like this, I'm not talking about cronyism. There's a difference, isn't there? There's a difference between inside baseball stuff and so forth, you know? My grandfather used to send me to I. Magnons at Christmas time to buy my grandmother a Christmas present that he'd give her, which was one ounce of Chanel Number no. 5. And he told me when I was 12 years old to go to the perfume department in I. Magnons and to buy this. And he, he said, I never forgot this. You tell them who you are. You tell them who you are. Now, that's an affirmative thing, isn't it? On one level, made me feel good. I was somebody by extension. But I had no knowledge that that kind of special privilege didn't attach to everybody. Right? So we all need to think about ethne and Laos in our friendships. And we need to seek true friendships even with people who are diametrically opposed to us. The kerfuffles in the Episcopal Church that have gone on off and on since the uh, late 60s, early 70s are, 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 are somewhat calm now, but they're there. And how do we sit down with one another and be able to be, be God's people? You know? Because you can't change. I'm not going to change my liberal views. And there are people who are conservatives, unfortunately, who are not going to change their views. <laughs> but they're all God's people. They're all God's people. So, this week, work on your friendships and understand friendship as a gift from God. And it's because God befriended us that we can enjoy friendship with one another. I think uh, in gospel terms, that's pretty good news. Amen.